I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, we're going to look at the first nine verses. I'm going to get to the reading in a moment. I want to do what, you know, Catherine, my daughter, always complains about preachers who don't read the text first but talk a long time. I'm going to do that today. I'm going to talk a little bit, then I'm going to read the text, so forgive me. But I'm only going to I'm going to read it in one book section, so it'll be okay. <clears throat> well, obviously we live in turbulent times. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, we've seen uh, the very foundation of our lives shaken, especially those of us who come from a more traditional background. Uh, our, our way of life, our values have been uh, called into question as Bob Dylan sang in the 60s, the times, they are a-changing. We see that all around us, and we wonder what in the world is going on, and it causes us to feel uh, insecure, causes us to wonder what the future might hold. It gives us anxiety about the future and about our children and our children's children and about our nation and land, what's going to happen. Well, <clears throat> turning our attention to Isaiah, back in chapter 39... Hezekiah was king of Judah at the time, and he was just coming off a life-threatening illness. He was going to die. He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord granted him 15 more years of life. And Hezekiah uh, was a fairly good king during his tenure, but he was king during a very turbulent time. Uh, the power at that time was the ruthless Assyrian Empire. They were, they were a nasty group of people, and they would come and just conquer everything and, and leave bodies piled up to show everybody how ruthless they were. So the Assyrians were, uh, were the main opponent of Judah at the time of Hezekiah, and, and uh, he had a lot of conflict with the Assyrians. God preserved the nation of Judah. The, the northern tribes of Israel fell to the Assyrians, about the time of Hezekiah's reign, around that time. And so Judah was hanging in there and doing battle with the Assyrians and the others. Now, upon his recovery from his life-threatening illness, Hezekiah received uh, an envoy from a little-known nation. Uh, they came to wish him well and to see what Israel was all about. And it just so happens that this little envoy was from Babylon. Who, could, who was worried about Babylon uh, at this time, the year, about the year 700 or so? Well, Hezekiah gladly received them and showed them all the treasures of Judah. It was kind of showing off uh, the, the, the glory and majesty of Israel. Well, Isaiah the prophet finds out about it, and he goes and questions Hezekiah. And... This is the word that the Lord gives to Isaiah to deliver to Hezekiah. He says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So, uh, 
you know, Hezekiah has just welcomed some robbers over to his house to, uh, to uh, appraise his jewelry, basically. And the Babylonians will come, of course, and conquer them a little later, uh, about 100 years later. But Hezekiah re- responds to this news, this word from the Lord that uh, Isaiah gives him in a very strange way. He says there, if you look in 39, uh, at the end of chapter 39, it says, uh, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. And, you know, it's like one of those slow-motion disasters that you see coming and you can't stop and you're going, no. That's what we feel when we read what Isaiah is saying, I mean, Hezekiah is saying here. The Babylonians are going to help me and secure peace and security for Israel. This is great that we had the Babylonians over. Well, the Babylonians brought nothing resembling peace and security to the people of God. Only disaster and darkness. And when the Babylonians eventually came to siege Jerusalem, the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the, uh, resorted, had to resort to cannibalism in order to survive. It's a very grim, difficult period in their history. And of course, they were sent off into exile by the Babylonians. And that's where chapter 39 leaves us, with this false hope of Hezekiah. Yes, this is going to lead to peace and security in our times. And we're saying, no, not the Babylonians. They are not your hope for peace and security. Now, we can look back at history and know that Hezekiah is here breathing a false sense of relief because the Babylonians, of course, were uh, just as ruthless as the Assyrians. But we are making the same error, errors ourselves when we do the exact same thing as Hezekiah did by setting our hopes on, say, the next election. You know, Hezekiah was looking for a regime change, a power change, someone else to come in and save them from all the warfare that they had endured at the hands of the Assyrians. And we tend to fall into the same kind of trap and we think we just need a regime change. We need a a new leader in office who will take America back, as we hear people say often. And this is nothing but a new form of idolatry. God's assessment of this way of thinking is found in chapter 41. You see it in verses 24, 29. Please look there. Uh, Notice that each, verse 24 and 29 of chapter 41, each begins with a behold. That means look at this, pay attention to this. And he's commenting on their idolatry. The, The people of God had a tendency to fall into idols. You read the Old Testament, it's no secret. They, they did it over and over again. They turned to uh, creatures, people, uh, false gods, idols, all kinds of different things to help them in their times of trouble. And they did not turn to the Lord as much as they turned to idols. But God's assessments of idols, verse 24 says, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. You know, there's not much less than nothing. 
Behold, you are less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And then down in 29 again. Behold, they are all a delusion. A delusion is something that you... The, the, the interesting Hebrew word there is, 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 comes from the word to pant. It means you're working hard at something and is, and is doing nothing. That's a delusion. You think it's doing something, but it's not doing anything at all. It says, Behold, they are all a delusion, these idols. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Well, that brings us to, to chapter 42, where we are today. Where, where does God want us to look in turbulent times? He's saying, look at the idols. They're nothing, less than nothing. They are empty, pointless, useless. But look somewhere else. Here's where you should look in turbulent times. We turn our attention to 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God wants us to look at his servant. He wants the servant to be the center of our attention. And especially in turbulent times when we're tempted to look elsewhere for answers. The answer is Christ. Of course, we find out in Matthew chapter 12 this passage is talking about Jesus Christ. It's applied directly to him. He is that servant who will not break the bruised reed or snuff out the, the smoldering wick. My servant. In contrast to the idols, this servant, let's just break it down in what God says about the servant. The servant is, it tells us there in verse 1, is the one he upholds and, and he addresses the servant in 5 through 9. And he says that, you know, I will take you by the hand. I am, I, you, are, you are my chosen one. You are the one that I have, uh, have set apart for this task. See, the idols could not accomplish anything. Back in 41, what we looked at last week was that they, you know, they encouraged one another. They made sure the soldering on the metal idol was all put together so the idol would be sure and, and be uh, sound. And they nailed him up to the wall so that he wouldn't fall over. And you know, what can an idol do that's nailed to the wall? Nothing. But this servant, this is the one that, that God has chosen to help us, to save us. Jesus is the one that God has set apart, whom God has, has called to come and rescue us. And, and God delights in his son. Of course, he says that uh, when we see Christ at the baptism. 
when, he, when Christ is baptized, we see that, that the more he grew as a, as a child in, in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men, Christ was perfect all through his life. And the more righteousness he did, the more it was pleasing to the Father, the more it brought glory to the Father. So he delights in this servant. He doesn't delight in the abomination that's the idols. The servant is God's delight. I have put my spirit upon him, he goes on to say. Uh, that's his power, the spirit. The spirit descended upon him like a dove at his baptism. Christ was empowered for the work that he had to do. That's in contrast with what we read about the idols in 42.9. Their metal images are an empty wind. The word wind and the word spirit in the Hebrew is the same word, ruach. So there's a, an empty wind that accompanies the idols, but the spirit of God accompanies Christ. See the contrast there. We've already rehearsed in chapter 41 how great God is. Uh, 40 and 41, that, that he is the creator of everything. He holds everything together and, and nothing happens apart from his will. He rules over the entire universe and he empowers his servant. That's where his power comes from. Now, verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Such a contrast with uh, the noisy leaders maybe of the day or of our day who are, uh, you know, proclaiming all the things that they'll do for us. The empty promises that are proclaimed loud. But Christ's promises were not empty promises. He was not going around bullying people. Uh, he was not going around fighting and debating people. But it tells us here that quietly... He served others. A bruised reed he will not break, and faintly burning wick he will not quench. See, he, he reaches out to those who are broken. You know, a bruised reed uh, is one that's bent. It hasn't snapped, but it's bent over, and he's not just going to break it off. But those who are weak and powerless, he, he ministers to them. And to those who, who are losing faith and hope, and that's what's pictured there by the, by the uh, faintly burning wick. You know, we, sometimes we have candles lit uh, here in the church and, and uh, we'll, we might uh, not be listening to the sermon but watching the candle that one of them's about to go out. You know, you ever had your attention caught by that? Uh, why won't, you know, we, we need that wick to be a little longer. Well, the wick is almost out. Symbolic of people who's whose hope and faith are, have come to nothing. You know, as we look around us and we see what's going on in our culture, it might make us lose hope and faith. We might question God like they do in chapter uh, 40. You know, God doesn't see. He, he, he's not seeing what's going on and he's disregarding our case. He's disregarding our right. He's not bringing forth justice. Where is God? Those are people who are losing faith and hope. See, he's not going to, to snuff that out, bulldozing like the Babylonians did. You know, they pretty much bulldozed everything that came in their path. But Christ comes gentle and ministering to those who need mercy and who are losing hope. When this is applied to Christ in Matthew 12, the debate is going on about healing a man on the Sabbath. 
and uh, the Pharisees are there and they're saying it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath and they're arguing about it a little bit. They're arguing with Christ and, and Christ just tells the man to stretch out your hand. He's healed. And uh, it tells us there that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This enraged them that he would heal this man on the Sabbath. And it says here that Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, etc. What we've just read here. You know, he... He didn't say, go out and tell everybody about how great I am and how I'm healing everyone. No, let's just continue to minister to the individuals who come along, who need grace and mercy. That's the kind of Savior Jesus is. And maybe sometimes, in our turbulent times, we overlook the gentle Savior. We want something more, you know, that looks bigger and more powerful and able to come and help us. But remember, he's empowered by the Spirit. And then verse 4 tells us that he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This speaks to his determination. You know, he's got a mission. Christ came on earth with a mission, and he's going to complete that mission. He will not be thwarted by any power on earth. We need to be reminded of that. This is the big picture of the history of the world. We often forget that. We think the history of our land is the center point of all that's going on in the world. But it's not. What's happening with Christ's church is what's the center of the entire world, the entire universe. Christ promised to build his church in the gates of hell. All the powers of evil aligned against it will not be able to conquer it will not be able to stop its progress. It will happen. It's going to happen. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. We see it in his earthly ministry. He was facing opposition all along, and the more he ministered, the more the opposition grew. So his sufferings grew with that. The opposition, the threats on his life. But then we see... Uh, late in his life, after he raises Lazarus from the dead, he's, he's gone out into the wilderness uh, because things need to calm down a little bit. But then, at a certain point, he turns back to Jerusalem because he knows what he's come to do. He will not be thwarted from his mission. He rides into Jerusalem. How does he ride in? On a donkey, very humble and gentle. He comes riding into Jerusalem to die. And we see him there, you know, uh, facing the, the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to the Lord, gently su uh, submitting to the will of the Father to complete this mission that he's on. We see him telling Peter to put away his sword. We see him uh, at the trial, not speaking up for himself when obviously the, there are false witnesses coming against him. We see him walking the way to the cross, laying down his life for us with determination, step after step. Not running, just steadily moving towards that direction. And that's where history's going. He ascended to heaven. He's going to return one day 
and he's going to finish everything. He's going to finish what he's begun. He's going to bring it to completion. He is the center of it all. He is the one that we need to be looking at during these turbulent times. Hebrews tells us to do the same thing. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Behold the servant of the Lord. Isaiah goes on to tell us a few things about him. One I want to highlight here, that he will, verse 6, God God says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. This speaks uh, directly to the table that we're uh, about to participate in. God relates to human beings in covenant relationships. And it's through Christ that we can have a covenant relationship with God. It's through Christ, that, you know, the mediator between God and man, that we can have this, this intimate relationship with him. And when we come to the table, we, we come and we sit down and we eat with, with, with God. We eat with the Lord. We commune with him. We, we are part of his family and he invites us to join and commune with him. So he is a, he is a covenant for the people. When we uh, participate in the, the, the cup... This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the, for the forgiveness of sins. Through what Christ sacrificed on the cross, we have forgiveness of sins. We can come through the Holy of Holies into the very presence of God. And he's a light for the nations, not just for, for this nation, but for the whole world. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Light comes from Christ. It doesn't come from anywhere else or from any, anyone else. He is the light. He reveals God to us. He reveals everything that we need to know to us. Now, the final thought. I read this quote that <coughs> strikes me as pertinent here. This is from uh, <coughs> Paul Trill. He says, There really is no place for Christ in many people's Christianity. Their faith is not actually in Christ. It is in Christianity and their own ability to live it out. In other words, their own growth and knowledge, their own uh, morality. And that's not Christianity at all. Christianity is looking to Christ, recognizing that we, just, we need more than just assistance. We need rescue. We need him to save us. And that's what he did on the cross. That's what he did when he laid down his life. He saved us. And our response to that should be to love him more than anything else and to trust him uh, at all times, even in the midst of turbulent times. When the times are changing, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the object of our faith. We cannot be moved. So let us trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. The servant of the Lord, we thank you that he came and served you and us by laying down his life for us and providing a way that we could be your people and you could be our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.